Good afternoon. Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Scott Greason, Conservation Director at Friends of the Eel River. The Eco News Report is an exclusive feature of KHSU brought to you by the North Coast Environmental Center, publisher of our regional environmental newspaper, the Eco News. Don't forget, you can find this show and other KHSU public affairs shows on the audio archives page at khsu.org. My guest today is Caitlin Reed. Ms. Reed is an enrolled member of the Yurok Tribe and a Ph.D. candidate in Native American Studies at the University of California, Davis. Her research interests include Native American land and water rights, traditional ecological knowledge, and environmental conflict. Her dissertation research explores the impacts of marijuana cultivation on Yurok tribal lands with a focus on tribal sovereignty and environmental justice. Caitlin has recently been awarded the Charles Eastman Dissertation Fellowship in Native American Studies at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire from 2018 to 2020. Welcome to the Eco News Report, Caitlin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're writing about the Green Rush broadly and Yurok territory. Maybe we should start by talking about what we understand by these words more broadly. One of the things I learned from reading some of what you've written so far is that, for example, Yurok isn't even a Yurok word. What? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a Karuk word. It means downriver people. So the Yurok tribe, as we know it today, which is, I think, a pretty powerful force within Humboldt and Del Norte counties and within California largely. One of the largest tribes. Yes. So and so I'm Yurok and Hoopa. The Yurok have the most enrolled members of any tribe in California, and the Hoopa have the largest land base. So We're number one. Yes, yeah. we're number one. Well, the tribe that, as we know it today exists from 1988. So that is not to say that Yurok people didn't exist before that. Yurok right. people have lived here since time of Memorial, more than 10,000 years. It was strategic for the tribe to become a tribe to be legible to the federal government. So we didn't have this sort of centralized hierarchical power structure, like as you find in the United States. Villages were pretty autonomous. Families practiced individual sovereignty. But it was, I think, useful for the Yurok tribe to kind of join in those terms to be able to negotiate with the federal government in powerful ways to acquire land and to acquire rights and access to our resources. And so... Yeah, the tribe as we know it is this centralized tribal structure that has a constitution, that has a council. I think we've indigenized these modes of governance, but there's definitely Western influence. And those tribal structures are largely by creation of the United States, right? Like we wouldn't have a reservation if we weren't colonized. So if John C. Fremont had come to the Iraq in the 1820s and said, take me to your leader, they would have looked at him like, what? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Like there wasn't this one power head that got to make unilateral decisions for people. Most like indigenous governance structures, there's a large diversity there, but many of them are much more egalitarian than we understand American democracy to be. And a lot of decision making was based on consensus. That seems kind of impossible today based on, I guess, the the rapidness of passing laws. And we we don't give enough time to really think through like how many congressmen actually read a freaking bill before they like right. vote on it. And so like we don't take the time to decision making or consensus making, right? We're all about being bought in and being lobbied. We're not actually thinking about what is good for like the entirety of our people. And like many tribal governments are modeled after American governance structures because of the Indian Reorganization Act in 1934. The American government basically said, be like us or don't be. But we, we won't know how to talk to you. Yeah. And so a lot of our adaptations were means of survival, but we've been able to indigenize those structures of governance too. So if you didn't call yourselves Yurok, what did you call yourselves? Uh, Pulikla was one term. What's that mean? I don't actually know what the breakdown of that word is. But roughly downrivers. Yeah, right. I think it would probably
probably have something to do with fish. I'm not a language person. I could yeah. look it up for you. But what I took from that is people who define themselves by relationship to the river. Yes. And your village specifically. Right. And so like a family name that would ring bells for what village you come from specifically. So when I go home, like I'm a diaspora Indian, so I didn't come back till when I was like about 20. The way I kind of ground myself is they ask me who my old people are because mm-hmm. that's how they know me. So they situate like myself in relationship to other people. I don't we don't know what village we came from. So we don't have that that part of our family history anymore. But yeah, like some people can go very far back and like they know their generations 10,000 years or more. But I think you would identify yourself based on like what village you are from. This reminds me of the story about the tradition in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, where if two strangers meet, they basically have to stand there and go through their genealogies until they find someone in common or they have to fight. So it's like either we're family at some distant remove Uh or we got to fight. Oh, that's interesting. So I I like the way that assumes a relationship, but, you know, Mm -hmm. you got to prove it. There was another tidbit in your writing that I that jumped out at me, which is that the Yurok word for for salmon is essentially food. Mm-hmm. That's another piece of the culture so deeply interwoven that you can't even really see it in a right. way. Right? Yeah, we exist to take care of the fish, and then vice versa. Right? So when we call ourselves salmon people, that's that's very literal, and our purpose is to take care of salmon, and so that means the river, that means the forest, and all of these other things that create salmon habitat. And so if salmon aren't here, I think that that's a very, I guess, cosmological violence, like stripping of identity, stripping of purpose. Yeah. Like when we talk about like settler colonialism and environmental injustice, I talk about like settler colonialism is in itself as a structure an environmental injustice because it prohibits somebody from practicing their their responsibility. There's a great Potawatomi scholar, Kyle White, he calls it moral terrain. Hmm. Like we have the responsibility to take care of our ancestral territory and if like various laws or corporations or whatever prevent us from doing that, that's a violence on a really deep level. What does settler colonialism mean to you? Yeah. So this is like day one in my intro to Native American studies class. That you teach. So most people learn, right, about kind of the British Empire, right, yeah. colonizing various places the sun never sets. Some of British. us think about the American Empire. Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And so that is kind of a like an extraction and transportation of resources, whether those are like minerals, water, bodies for slavery. Furs. Um, yeah, exactly. Settler colonialism rather than extractive colonialism, you have to create a new home, right? The settler not only wants the resources, but it wants to create a new home. I and mean, so there's a scholar named Patrick Wolf. He talks about a settler colonialism as a structure. So we often think about settler colonialism as, as an event, right? It happened in 1492 and now it's over. But if you think about it as a, as a structure, settler colonialism has to be reproduced every single day. So that means every morning that Redwood National Park wakes up with the title to our ancestral territory from us or Green Diamond or Simpson Timber or whatever, right? That's settler colonialism being reproduced every day, right? And you see it in a lot of different places. Like the erasure of tribal sovereignty whenever it's convenient for state or federal governments or county governments. You see that in like the censorship of like, like public schools are still cutting native kids hair. Like they're still not letting more moccasins to graduation. And like all of these continuation of depriving native people of their rights to practice their culture, rights to exist as like independent nations. But it's something much broader than just the displacement of native peoples by white people making farms. Yes. And because the United States is founded on settler colonialism, settler colonialism also intersects with other modes of oppression, 
right? I don't think we can talk about systemic racism in the prison industrial complex without talking about settler colonial. Like, that's like our baseline that we were built out of, right? So one example I give to my students when we're talking about like native feminisms, I draw a big circle and I write a bubble and I write settler colonialism and all of these bottom bubbles are like racism, classism, sexism, all your isms, right? And I talk about how settler colonialism brought patriarchal structures to indigenous communities, right? That brought oppression against women and rape and sexual violence. And so it doesn't make sense for indigenous communities to target sexism as a problem without targeting this bigger bubble that's producing it. So I argue the same thing with environmental injustice, right? It's useless to talk about environmental justice in indigenous communities if you're not also talking about settler colonialism and the way it's reproduced through private property and land rights, right? So maybe we can talk here about the paradigmatic example in our territory here, this this region, the place where we all live, mm-hmm. of settler colonialism, the gold rush. Mm-hmm. You know, I've used the phrase the green rush quite a bit and quite self-consciously to evoke the gold rush and especially the damage to the land right. that was done during the gold rush, the land, the rivers, the fish. But it's really hard to compare anything in the modern era to the wreckage, not just of landscapes, but of peoples that happened in the first few decades of white America's expansion into what's now California. Mm-hmm. I guess to start with, I've wondered quite a bit myself if by drawing that comparison, I'm cheapening the memory of those horrors. Hmm. If, like, by analogy, thinking about you know, modern oppression in terms of the Holocaust, it's something we're told not to do, except in the most extreme cases, because that's such such a horror. You know, Mm. that we shouldn't compare modern massacres to it. And then, you know, we come to think about, well, Rwanda, though, was really a genocide. It was people trying to exterminate another people. Mm. So we say, okay, we should use these ideas similarly. So I guess coming around for me, the, the, the ideas you're confronting make me wonder, are we now living in an era of genocide and ecocide? You know, I've taken it for granted for decades that we are living in an era of of ecocide. Mm-hmm. You make me wonder whether it's also genocide. I, I really, really appreciate your critique on the comparison between Gold Rush and Green Rush. And I'm glad it's something I'm engaging with prior to the publishing of a book. I have a lot of thoughts that came to mind with what you said. I'm going to try to go through them in order. We're not seeing the type of death tolls that characterize Spanish missionization, the Mexican-American War era, and then the Gold Rush, right? That was like 90% of our population in a very, very short period of time. At one point, 95%. Yeah. Yeah. Of California Indians died yeah. during the gold rush. Maybe three quarters of the Iraq tribe was wiped out. Yes. So we're not seeing statistics like that by any means. People do define genocide, right? That's essential. I think a lot of people bicker over like specific parts of that definition and want to argue whether or not it is genocide. And I think that is less useful than understanding the worldviews that create the possibility for genocide. That is much more, as a scholar, I think interesting to me and more useful in preventing the next one. And I got to say that you're saying it that way chilled me in <laughs> our current cultural circumstances because I think we are seeing to a great extent a kind of discourse abroad in our culture that creates the conditions for genocide that right. has previously been at best impolite and, mm-hmm. and mostly constrained. Yeah. And now it's overt. 
Yes. Like the separation of children at the border. Like right. we've Indian country has seen that. Like that wasn't a shocker to us. Right. Just the description of brown people as animals. Yes. Right. Yeah. Most the military would call most tribes by like a. that's one of the ways to kind of, I, I guess, make murder routine is to like dehumanize a people and like right. not call them by their like not call them Yurok, call them animals. Right. And like other places that were invading around the world are then called Indian country. So I think that's a important connection. When I was a kid, I heard the word gooks a lot oh, used really? to describe people in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very pervasive tendency by the U.S. military. But to this question of genocide, yeah, I think it's important that we not lessen the of the horribleness of what happened. But I think it's interesting that you bring up the Holocaust specifically, because I, when I teach about the California genocide in my class, I ask who's read the diary of Anne Frank. Everybody raises their hand. Nobody is aware that there was a genocide on the place that they live. So I think wow. the Holocaust is utilized within public education very strategically. One, because we get to be the hero of that narrative, right? United States comes in and saves the day. Right. We It is very geographically distanced. It didn't happen on this soil. And it's white people. And so we do teach kids about genocide and this horrible violence, but we still very much censor the one America is founded on, right? America wouldn't exist without a genocide. At, at least one. For sure. Yeah. In California, there were three distinct genocides. Yeah, I was also thinking about the systematic violence against black people. Yes, yeah. And so genocide changes, right? right? The violence we experienced in 1850 doesn't look the same. And then because you mentioned Rwanda, I wanted to bring up, so I got the amazing opportunity to go to Kigali. I was in one of their genocide museums that they had put together. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, like, why they displayed their dead. I didn't know if that was like a cultural thing or if mm -hmm. like, because like we don't do that. Right. And she's like, no. And if people don't know, the types of things you see in these museums are skulls that have been like beaten in with machetes and like very, very graphic stuff. And I was like, why are you displaying this? And she was like, because we need to keep this because I know that someday, like the UN or some entity is going to say that that genocide never happened. And like that really resonated with me because there's a scholar in Sacramento who's like the California never had a genocide. And this guy has a PhD in history. And so like people try to tell you your history didn't happen. They try to erase and cover up that violence. And so back to today, ecocide, yeah, I think we could all argue in terms of an actual genocide. I think there are different ways to look at it. We talk about the word cultural genocide. If you destroy what makes us a people, I think that is, I use the phrase cosmological violence, right? You're right. ripping our purpose from us. And so I appreciate our conversation last week because I think I need to use genocide with more intention because I'm, I read histories of genocide a lot and right, I'm like quick to use that word. And so this, uh, I guess, critique of the comparison between Gold Rush and Green Rush helps remind me that I need to be more intentional about the use of that word. Oh, and me too. And you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the way that the gold rush entailed, you know, literal massacres right. of Native people, the enslavement of Native kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know they're orphans. I killed their parents. Yep. You know. Yeah, that's from Jack Norton's book. Yeah. It's called When Our Worlds Cried. Everybody should Google it. Check yeah. It out. And then the almost immediate wreckage of the rivers and the salmon. Yeah. Literally by the 1860s, right. gold mining's impacts on the Klamath and the Trinity rivers were already so clear that the river wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> it was right. full of mud. It wasn't full of fish anymore. Right. And people were writing about how in the old days it used to be full of fish and now right. it isn't. So, you know, these are very, very stark impacts, literally mountains blown away yeah. by hydraulic mining. 
For sure. And I think we need to remember the sort of rhetoric that happens at the time because they were bringing us civilization. They were right. bringing us wealth. They were bringing us great gifts. The way they would talk about Indians, right? Like the first, I think I, I mentioned this last week, but when the Spanish showed up in their diaries, they were writing like, why are all these Indians burning everything? Like, how stupid are they? And so European settlers saw Indian people as less than human. Talking here literally about the Klamath region yeah. and the practice of managing forests yes, fire. Yes, yes. So like California Indians would keep California on fire all the time. We would burn very regularly and we knew what needed to be burned, how often, when, the frequency, the intensity, etc. And that is the reason in 1905, U.S. Forest Service says, hey, cut it out. 1910, the BIA takes over our forestry management, says don't burn. And that is the reason we have so many terrible wildfires today, because they're not letting Indian people take care of this land in a way we know how. And so settlers showing up in California, don't think Indian people have complex or intelligent societies. They don't think we understand our landscape. They don't think we know how to take care of ourselves, right? And so they come here calling us pagans and savages and like are super stoked to like show us a new way of life. And so they unleash their cattle and their hogs and their sheep and they ruin all of our seeds. They destroy our riverbanks, deplete our fish populations. And then like the whole time they're trying to pursue this idea of wealth in their heads. Their wealth is like like monetary. If you were in the Klamath Basin and you had millions of salmon coming through your bank, like your river every year, like that was, we lived in an extraordinary wealth. Real abundance. Yeah. Exactly. But now we measure earth and natural resources in terms of its monetary value as natural resources for inputs within this capitalist system, rather than like how we can survive and like cohabitate on this earth. And so that environmental destruction ignores traditional knowledges. And I use a term eco-colonialism a lot in my work or ecological colonialism. So settler colonialism is this like legalized theft of our land and our territories and the dispossession of indigenous peoples. But ecological colonialism to me more so describes when you change the fundamental integrity of a landscape so that you cannot survive on it in a way you once could. And so what that means is that Indian people then have to go work wage labor in the timber industry or like desecrate their forests for Western money. If you're just tuning in, this is the Eco News Report. I'm Scott Greeson. Conservation Director with Friends of the Eel River. And I'm talking today with Caitlin Reed, PhD candidate at the University of California, Davis, and a member of the Yurok tribe who's writing about the impacts of marijuana cultivation on Yurok tribal lands. I guess I'm just going to cut to what feels like the core question and what you're looking at, Caitlin, is, is does marijuana cultivation in the modern era promote environmental injustice in your culture on your traditional lands? What does that mean? And what's the magnitude of the problem? What's it look like from the tribal land? Yes. The short answer to your question is yes. Environmental injustice is occurring. And what does that mean? What does environmental right. injustice uh, mean in this context? So what that means is that people of color or indigenous peoples or other minorities endure a unproportional burden of environmental hazards mm -hmm. um, than the rest of the population. And so what that looks like in your country is that we have trespass growers and some trying to go through Humboldt County's permitting process that are growing in your ancestral territory and creating a lot of environmental harm. That product is then sold outside of your ancestral territory and the Yurok tribe does not benefit. 
Yurok tribal peoples, for example, are not hired to work there. Yurok tribe has to clean up their abandoned grow site when they leave. We can't go gather because they might have guns or dogs or present other sorts of violence. They damage our water. They leave pesticides on basketry materials, a variety of things. And we're not making money off of that in the way they are, right? Billions of dollars have been made off the marijuana economy in the Yurok tribe. Most of its members are in extreme poverty. I actually started thinking about this project very early on because when I was a freshman in college, I went to Vassar. It's in upstate New York. I told somebody I was from Humboldt County and their eyes lit up because it had this reputation that I would be able to offer them. Hook them up. Yep, exactly. And so I was a geography major at the time, but I was just wondering how like the production of this product makes its way to its consumer base. And so I see this triangle, really. Indigenous lands are being trashed. Black people are going to jail and white people are making a ton of money. And so I think marijuana intersects a variety like of structural oppression, settler colonialism, the prison industrial complex. And if you look at a global scale, indigenous lands are targeted worldwide for drug production and their sure. environmental hazards as of that. You're reminding me of my very brief time in the Copper Canyon, Tarahumaran country, yeah. looking at exactly those issues for the Tarahumaran and the Tepuan. Yeah, that's a great um, parallel. When you were talking about this idea of settler colonialism, you, you said something that really struck me. You said whether it's Redwood National Park or Green Diamond. And of course, as a white enviro, those mm. are entities that <laughs> occupy very different categories right. in my head. Yeah. So when you lump them together, it, it really rang a kind of a bell for me. Hmm. I'm wondering, as you talk about the impacts of cannabis cultivation on Yurok territory, if part of it is the way that this assertion of ownership of control hmm. reinforces the dispossession of the Yurok people. And we didn't really talk much about it, but you have a reservation as a tribe that doesn't include most of the land in its borders right. and is a tiny fraction of your traditional territory. Yeah, we see even more land being bought up. So right now, the Yurok tribe is in a, I think, the noble pursuit of buying back lands that have been stolen from us. And so now, similarly to the way millions and millions of people from around the globe flooded into California during the gold rush, we're getting people from all over the world coming to buy land in Humboldt County and in Del Norte County in our ancestral territory. They offer cash under the table way more than we could pay, right? And they're taking land through this way. We're also seeing waves of removal. People, because they don't have safe drinking water anymore, they're being forced to leave their reservations. And so these are the sort of parallels I see between the miners of the gold rush and the growers of the green rush. Hmm. The other impacts I look at are these ecocide issues that we're talking about. Water rights is a huge one, right? So Indian people couldn't file for water rights in the 1850s in California when miners were. It was illegal to be in public, let alone like recognized as a citizen, right? We weren't citizens. You weren't even considered. Exactly. You you couldn't get in a courtroom. Right. And so when we're talking about senior water rights, that inherently excluded tribes. Right. And so the way our water was taken from us, and now I'm researching the way the State Water Resource Control Board within California is streamlining the process to give growers water rights, both appropriative and riparian water rights. And so this rush to claim natural resources, I argue that the, the transformation of land into private property is a violent one because it requires the enclosure and dispossession, right? And you're turning land, like that, something we should look at as a relation or an ancestor rather than a resource to be extracted. You're necessarily defining that when we're talking about private property. And I think private property is a terrible way to deal with environmental problems because environmental impacts don't care about the lines you've drawn on a map. And so the Yurok tribe, our reservation, our land base is very fractionated because of the Dawes Allotment Act 
and various other acts within California that allowed settlers to take even more Indian land. And so we have a lot of non-Indian private property owners within reservation boundaries, and that makes it really difficult to have a comprehensive environmental management practice. So when, in this instance, Humboldt County moves to give a local permit or the state moves to give a state permit to a grower who's on the Yurok Reservation or in Yurok Tribal Traditional Territory, Mm -hmm. but off the reservation, what's the tribe's position with respect to those operations? And, And how is that working? So currently on the reservation, there is a zero tolerance policy. Nobody is allowed to grow on the reservation, including tribal members. Right now, there is a 10-month moratorium that has been placed on issuing permits within ancestral territory. We hope to make this permanent. If a permit application goes through within ancestral territory because of CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, and a law called AB 52, the county, as well as states, are required to consult with tribes. That sounds great. What this looks like in practice is a bureaucrat wanting to check off a box saying we talk to tribes and whether they care about our feedback or are going to factor that into their decision making has proven to be an entirely different matter. And so I think for the Yurok tribe, we're in it for the long haul. And I think our best strategy going forward is acquiring as much jurisdiction over our ancestral territory as possible. And that's when I think you see real racism coming out, right? Everybody is happy and willing to support Indian culture when it is over there. Until you tell me what to do with my land. Exactly. And it's not impacting your economic generating activities. Right. My Um, land, which used to be your land. Yeah. Yeah. When you actually exercise that sovereignty, that tribal jurisdiction, that is when we see the older settler colonialism tendencies and practices coming out. And so my awesome, one of my advisors on my dissertation committee, Dr. Kutcher Risling-Baldi, a professor at Humboldt State University, told me this really great quote that Humboldt County likes to think it's really left and liberal. But what founded us is this gold rush. And we've been rushing since 1840. And I think we can't really divorce contemporary desire to get permits and grow marijuana to make money off of from the roots that Humboldt County had, right? The rush is to come in very quickly with urgency and to extract natural resources for monetary profit. And I think that is the biggest connection between the gold rush and the green rush, this notion that the world exists for humans to exploit. Well, and for windfall, for riches, not just for sustenance. Exactly. So you're basing it off profit and profit like you can eat too much, but you can never have enough profit. Right. Like, like, so people are always going to be continuing. It'll never be enough. Right. This sort of greed. And I think generational impacts. The rush mentality doesn't think about future generations. The Sierra Fund estimates there are 50,000 abandoned mines from the gold rush that we still haven't cleaned up. We haven't figured out how to put together a mountain that we've blown up. And so we go into these grows, the green rush, right, thinking we'll make a ton of money, but we're not thinking about what we're leaving behind for future generations. So an obvious but so far unarticulated piece of this is the violence that is part of the the fact that we have an illegal economy. What does that look like in the the tribal world? So I think we see a lot of violence on different fronts. One, the industry is made out of violence. There's a lot of labor trafficking and sexual trafficking that is occurring. Humboldt County has the highest rate of missing people in California and not a huge population in comparison to other counties. So that's really alarming. And and these are mostly women. Yeah. And we live in an area with a huge concentration of indigenous peoples. And so like there's overlap between like disregard and lack of care over missing and murdered indigenous women. Just yesterday, I was talking to a good friend 
friend and author Judith Serber. She wrote a book about drugs in Hoopa Valley called Reservation High. It's a really great book. She was telling us about this missing person who, a young woman from Eureka, and it was all over the news, the local news and papers. And then her, her niece, I believe, who's a young Indian woman, went missing and nobody did anything. It wasn't written anywhere. And like, she wasn't white. Yeah. And so that's one story, but I've heard that story a million times all across Indian country. And Indian women are subject to violence and especially sexual violence at a rate far higher yeah. than the rest of the population. Right. So here's a crazy fact. It wasn't illegal for non-Native men to rape Indian women within reservation boundaries until 2013. That's because of a court case called Oliphant versus Suquamish in 1978. Really needs to be overturned. So <laughs> all you listeners go out and get that overturned. Yeah, working on it. And so I think there's that element of violence with the industry. And then there is the issue of growers who want to be secretive. And it doesn't matter if you're an 80-year-old lady going to gather bear grass or a police officer, that grower is going to be frightened that you're stumbling into his grow. So there have been countless instances of gatherers or other cultural practitioners being held up at gunpoint from a grower. There have been a lot of gates that have just been put in around the reservation to block off roads. People have told me stories that they feel scared to go down certain roads in broad daylight. Employees who work for the tribe and do field work, like I used to work for our tribe's environmental program and we'd have to go out and do water sampling and other things like that. I've heard of numerous employees accidentally stumbling into a grow. Either one, they have to leave and they can't get their job done or they have a really close call and they live to tell me the story. And so I think when you hear that story once, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's bad. But when you hear that story every time you talk to somebody, right, that paints a larger picture of violence that is occurring. And people like to say, oh, it's just weed, right? And just weed doesn't carry with it the sort of violence that methamphetamines does or other sorts of drugs. Or the and, uh, heroin trade, but how do we disentangle them? I, yeah, I think the, that, that drug trade is very complex, but Judah Serber, who I was talking with yesterday, told me a story of her Her son was shot in the head over being shorted three ounces of weed, along with two other boys who were also shot in the head. Um, and so that sort of gruesome violence that we characterize with other sorts of drugs, right? that's, that's weed too. Also. Well, more to the point, the money associated yes, with it. right? Yeah. 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 So when you are growing to have a few plants in your yard, it doesn't matter if a teenager comes and takes one. When you're going for profit and you have millions of dollars at stake, you're going to have guns, you're going to have dogs, you're going to bring a level of threat and intimidation into the community that wouldn't otherwise exist. And I was talking with a great woman, Don McCovey, who works for the Hoopa Forestry Department, and she says whether that violence exists or not, that perceived violence is intolerable. Right? As Indian people, so much of our land have already been stolen. When we're on a reservation, that's like the last bit of land we've been able to retain. And if we don't even feel safe to be able to walk out in broad daylight, that's a profound sense of violence. On a population that has to be understood as already living with a kind of cultural PTSD. Yes, right? Lawrence Gross, an Anishinaabe scholar, he's amazing. He calls it post-apocalyptic stress syndrome because mm. we've already survived an apocalypse. The gold right. rush was an apocalypse for Indian people right. and we've already survived. More or less. But yeah, that historical trauma is heavy baggage. Like scientists are just now figuring out that like that trauma actually gets built into your DNA and it's literally passed on to future generations. And so that is what we're also coping with, right? Also the trauma of the boarding school. And the genocide in California wasn't that long ago. It was only 150 years ago, right? right? There are like the old people alive today. They heard stories from really old people that saw it, yeah. right? And so like on the East Coast, right, the, their genocide is really far removed. But in the California, especially for people who have lived here for over 10,000 years, 150 
years is like not that long to us. Yeah. And there are still people today who were taken from their parents and put in boarding schools. Exactly. People often tell us to get over it. Like it was a long time ago. And I think the way people talk about it, they're talking about it as if it's California Indian history or it's Indian history. And I have to remind my students like, no, this is American history. Right. And if we're dealing with the trauma, like you guys come from ancestors that committed a genocide, like that has to have some baggage like that they need to work through. And so I think it's really important that we talk about this genocide frequently and like see the ways that it's manifesting in contemporary society. So it's just as much everybody else's problem as it is our, an Indian problem. I, I got to say, I really appreciate your ability to talk about such painful stuff with such a smile. <laughs> I've been talking about it for a long time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's really hard stuff. Yeah. And best we can do, I think, is try to talk about it. Right. Like so I kind of see this arc of emotion with students. One is anger. Like, why didn't I know this? And I think, yeah, your education system failed you. You have a right to be angry. And then the slump I don't want people to stay in is guilt. Right. Like, white white guilt is the most useless thing in the world. <laughs> like, <all right? laughs> like, don't spend your energy there, right? You have a right to be angry and upset that you were deprived of your nation's history and you weren't told the truth. But then you need to look at the ways that you are implicit in settler colonialism. We grew up in a race a society, right? And so until we actively do the work to like intellectualize that and disentangle that within our own minds, we're going we might think racist tendencies and ideologies, right? So we have to do that work. So settler colonialism is the same thing. It was the norm. It's invisibilized. And so unless you actively take the and do the intellectual work to think through the ways in which you're reproducing a settler colonial culture, it's not gonna go away. And like decolonization can't just be an Indian project. Yeah. And I know it's overused, but accomplices are better than allies. We need other people willing to go to jail to end settler colonialism and institutional racism. Indian people already have an insane rate of jail. So, Okay. Well, I think we got more to talk about here, but we're <laughs> out of time. So this has been the Eco News Report. My name is Scott Greason. I've been your host for the past half hour. I've been speaking with Caitlin Reed, who's a member of the Yurok tribe and a PhD candidate at the University of California, Davis. If you have any questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. You can hear this broadcast again on the archive programs page of the station's website at khsu.org. The Eco News Report is produced at Humboldt State University in cooperation with the North Coast Environmental Center. Tune in again next week at the same time for the Eco News Report. 